Have you experienced Korean barbecue before? Well, it is a feast. That is a good way to describe it. There are grills in front. It's all you can eat. So you pick whichever plan, and then you just tell the waiter what to bring as many times as you want, or as many times as you can, and they just keep bringing the food, and you just fill your stomach. And of course, because the food is so good, and because you want to get your money's worth, you really, you really need to push yourself. And I think we did that, uh, safe to say. Wave after wave, we began to slow down as we were consuming lots and lots of meat, until eventually we didn't think we could eat any more, and then we ate just a little bit more, until we were full and satisfied. Well, it may not be Korean barbecue, but in our story, Jesus provides a meal for a great crowd, provides abundantly, so that everyone eats and is satisfied. That's what it says. It's an amazing story. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6, verse 30. Mark chapter 6, verse 30, which you can find on page 841 of the Bibles provided. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word at home that you can read, feel free to take one of the black Bibles behind the chairs as our gift to you. We would love for you to have your own copy to read at home. Up to this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus has made quite a commotion through his teaching and his miracles. He has made many friends, and he has also made many enemies. His own hometown has rejected him at this point. Religious leaders have plotted to kill him. Still, his fame just continues to grow. At one point, Mark even records crowds so enthusiastic reaching out to be healed, that there is a fear that Jesus would be crushed by the crowd. Well, if you've been studying with us, you'll remember that after Jesus was rejected from his hometown, he then commissioned his disciples to go out and to preach on his behalf and to work many miracles. And then in between or during that mission, we hear about the kind of opposition there is towards Jesus. Herod Antipas hosts a feast that ends in the tragic death of John the Baptist. And the premise of that story is that Herod hears about the person of Jesus. And there's questions about who this Jesus is. Herod is confident it is John the Baptist resurrected. Others say it may be Elijah. Others, one of the prophets. And that question is still lingering in this passage. The question is, who is Jesus? Likely, that's the reason that all of these people are seeking to find him. Well, our story picks up right where the last one left off, with the disciples returning from their mission to Jesus. Let's read now Mark 6, verses 30 through 44. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, 
he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. This may be one of Jesus' most famous miracles. In fact, it's the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels outside of the resurrection. Well, some passages, the main idea is not easy and takes a lot of work, but I think this one is a little bit clearer. I'm thankful for that. And so the main idea for this passage is that Jesus is the good shepherd that cares for his people and provides for their needs. Jesus is the good shepherd that cares for his people and provides for their needs. My prayer is that this passage would be a reminder to you of the compassion of our Savior, of his tender care for his people and his great power to provide for all our needs. Let's jump into our text. First, I want you to see that Jesus is a mindful God. Jesus is a mindful God. So right from the beginning, we see the apostles return from their journey, and they come to Jesus to report. Mark doesn't tell us what they said or how long they had this conversation, but I imagine it would have been an exciting time of sharing. As the disciples, they had never worked miracles like this before, and so they probably would have been surprised and excited about the things that God had done on their journey. It says in verse 13 of chapter 6 that they were healing diseases and casting out demons. And the other thing is that them returning shows that this mission was a successful one. We know from the rest of the text that it was successful because it says that large crowds are coming from the nearby towns, and I assume that these are the same towns the disciples went out to. And it also says that the crowd recognized them, which I assume means they didn't just recognize Jesus, but his messengers as well. Perhaps the disciples were becoming well-known. Well, I don't think this was a private powwow with Jesus either, because uh, it says that many were coming and going, and so much so that they didn't even have time to stop and to eat. And amidst all the excitement and the crowds and the stories, Jesus is mindful of their physical need, their need for rest. Life with Jesus was not a quiet one. In fact, we are in chapter 6 now, but if you'll remember, all the way back in chapter 1, verse 45, not even two chapters into the book, Mark tells us that Jesus 
couldn't even openly enter a town. And people were coming from every quarter to find him in the desolate places. Well, much like the desolate place they try to escape to in this passage, the disciples may have been energized from their journey, but they would have been physically exhausted. Already with Jesus, they're constantly on the move, constantly around crowds. It's Really, it sounds like an introvert's nightmare, if you ask me. And if you'll remember, what they took on their previous journey was very little. They took hardly anything. It was basically one pair of clothes, no bread, no money, a staff. And I don't know how long the mission was, but I'm guessing if you were couch surfing from house to house or couch to couch with a single pair of clothes, it wouldn't take long for you to get weary from doing that. And so Jesus tells them to go to a desolate place and rest for a while. It's interesting that they don't ask for rest. Jesus just knows they need it. That's often how it is for us, too. Jesus knows our needs. That's why he tells us on the Sermon on the Mount not to be anxious about what we're going to eat or drink or wear, but because God provides for the birds of the air and we are far more valuable than them, we can trust him to provide for us. Many times God provides in our lives without us even asking. Just think for a moment how many things in your life you just assume will happen without expelling even a breath of prayer. It's a good thing that God's provision doesn't depend on the strength or the frequency of our prayers, isn't it? I wonder if the disciples knew that they needed rest. Uh, Our culture, we tend to have two extremes, right? We're either addicted to being busy or our idea of rest looks more like sitting on our phone for hours, endlessly scrolling. I happen to uh, think that I do pretty well on little rest. Uh, I think that's kind of a special skill, and I'm thankful for the way that I've been able to use it through busy times of work and school. But what the result of that is, is I sometimes convince myself that I don't need rest, or that I should be busy all the time. And I reach a point where I become so physically exhausted that I become spiritually exhausted as well. I think what's important to see here in the case of the disciples is that Jesus didn't just want them to have time for leisure. He wanted them to be spiritually refreshed. He wanted them to spend time specifically, privately, with him. Friends, private time with Jesus or time in God's word and in prayer is like a scuba diver returning to the refill his oxygen tank. As it's written in Deuteronomy 8.3, man does not live on bread alone, but man lives on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So, friends, the question for us today is do you give yourself sufficient time to rest in this way? Do you see the importance of spending time meeting with God? Shameless plug for our new Equip Hour starting up next week. (laughs) Helpfully titled, Meeting with God. 9.30 a.m., everyone's welcome, right here. Back to the sermon. We need to be sure that we don't starve ourselves spiritually, just as much as we're sure we don't starve ourselves physically. Those two things go hand in hand, and Jesus is mindful of both of them. He's mindful not just of our physical needs, but of our spiritual needs. Look again at verse 33. 
It says, Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. This is what happens when they try to get away from people. They get into a boat, and they travel along the coast. This was just a way to travel up the land to a different port to get away from the crowd. It's not the first time they've gotten in a boat to try to escape the crowd. And as they're going along the coast, people from the land recognize them and run, I assume miles, to get to the place they're going before them. And this is an enormous crowd of people eagerly seeking him out. And he has compassion on them. Compassion is a strong feeling towards people. And this word especially, it communicates that it's a feeling from, like from the bottom of his heart. That's how we say it today. There's lots of different, different definitions of compassion, but here was one that I liked that I found. It's an awareness. It has four key components. An awareness of someone's suffering, a sympathetic concern after being emotionally stirred by their suffering, a desire to see relief, and a responsiveness to help bring that relief. All of this is going on in Jesus' heart as he sees the crowd on the hills. That specific word, compassion, is also unique. In fact, it's only used to describe Jesus in the entire book. In the entire New Testament, it's only used of Jesus or, in parables, people who represent Jesus or God. Well, just imagine what this crowd looked like in the eyes of Jesus. A crowd full of people who desperately ran miles to find him. Many seeking to be healed. Others eager just to learn about who he is. Terribly misguided by the leaders and rulers of their land. The way the crowd was spread across the area, they probably looked like sheep. And so Jesus is moved out of his love for them. He sees them as sheep without a shepherd. What exactly are sheep like without a shepherd? This is a good exercise. Uh, I can summarize for you. First, they're not the smartest or the toughest or the fastest animals by any means. They are very much helpless. You know, kids would play the game where they would imagine what kind of animal they would be if they could be an animal. Most kids probably don't choose sheep. Just saying. They have no idea what to do or where to They're just not very bright creatures. Uh, Kara showed me a, a video just this past week of a flock of sheep that started running following a runner nearby. Not attacking the person, just following. And not their shepherd, just a random jogger passing by. Who knows where the shepherd was in that case. But these are not good pets. Sheep without a shepherd have no guidance or protection. They're completely defenseless. They just exist. They wander. They're vulnerable. And that's what Jesus sees in this crowd when he looks out at them. A people that are lost. A people that have no guidance. Why is that the case? If you're familiar with the Bible, you know that in the Old Testament, the leaders of Israel were commonly thought of as shepherds for the people. Moses and Joshua are both called shepherds. David himself was literally a shepherd boy before he was called to be the shepherd of Israel. 
Earlier we read the beginning of Ezekiel 34, which is God's indictment on the bad shepherds of Israel in the way that they took advantage and fed themselves rather than the people. And so God himself promises that he will come and be the shepherd of his people. Jesus' compassion here in this text parallels God's sentiment in Ezekiel 34. And his command to have the people sit down on the green grass in verse 39 stirs up the image of Psalm 23, verse 2, doesn't it? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. It says in our text that uh, he commanded them to sit, but that same word means recline or lie down. Jesus also says in John 6, I am the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. And after that, he says shortly, I and the Father are one. Jesus is the good shepherd that cares for his people and provides for their needs. Perhaps another reason why the death of John is inserted just above this paragraph is just to show us how badly Israel was in need of a good shepherd. Brothers and sisters, just look at the tender compassion of our Savior and how different he is from the rulers of the world. Last week, we read of a banquet in the halls of King Herod, a feast spread out in a great dining hall. Here, another feast with far less extravagant food out in a desolate place. Herod welcomed only the highest-ranking officials in the elite of the area. Jesus welcomes common folk, everyone. Herod objectifies individuals for entertainment. Jesus lovingly instructs them. Herod took a man's life for his reputation. Jesus surrendered his own in order to save his people. And what is Jesus' first response to this wandering people? Verse 34 says he began to teach them many things. They needed spiritual instruction. The primary job of any shepherd is to feed his sheep. So Jesus feeds his people with his word. This is one of the reasons we take God's word and preaching, especially so seriously here. There is an immense responsibility for those who are charged to teach the Bible to others. In John 21, Jesus asks Peter three times, Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And after Peter says that he does, after each time he says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my lambs. It's the charge of every pastor to give the people the word of God. Yes, there are other things pastor do, but pastors do and other things that I do, of course, but a significant chunk of my time each week is spent preparing to give you the word. And uh, it's a joy to do so. Uh, and you, especially as a church, if I can just encourage you, are especially receptive, and it's a privilege to bring God's Word to you each week. The job of every Christian is to regularly be feeding on His Word. Do you hunger for the Bible? Do you give the Bible priority over other voices in the world? There are so many people who want your attention who want you to listen to them. 
But brothers and sisters, prioritize the teachings of Jesus. Prioritize what God's Word says over whatever the current trend is on social media or your favorite news anchor is saying, or even celebrity pastors who don't know you. Only God's Word can feed your soul. Only God's Word brings life. Store it away in your heart, as Psalm 119, verse 11 says. Once again, Mark highlights the priority of Jesus' teaching ministry. He is, first and foremost, a teacher. He shows he is the good shepherd by his compassion for his people. And so he cares for them by providing for them spiritually. Jesus is a mindful God. The second thing I want you to see is that Jesus is a powerful God. Jesus is a powerful God. Mark doesn't tell us how long he was teaching the people, but I'm guessing it was a number of hours since as evening approaches, the disciples come to Jesus. They probably, after feeling a little uncomfortable themselves, realized he's not going to stop. We should probably tell him. (laughs) So they come and they say, this is a desolate place, meaning remote. The hour is late. And they suggest that Jesus send the people away to nearby towns so that they can buy themselves something to eat. Which honestly doesn't seem like a bad suggestion, does it? I read that and I thought, seems reasonable. The disciples didn't want the people to go hungry. And Uber Eats probably didn't deliver way out there at that time of day. The event is famously called Feeding of the 5,000, which is actually a little misleading. All four Gospels say clearly that there were 5,000 men rather than people. And Matthew's Gospel even goes out of his way to say that there were 5,000 men besides the women and children, which has led a lot of people to guess that the crowd is larger and looks something more like fifteen to 20,000 people. That's a lot of mouths to feed. Just imagine what would happen if all those people suddenly showed up at the local markets. There wouldn't be enough food for them to go around. So maybe the disciples' suggestion isn't as good as it sounded at first. What does Jesus say to them in verse 37? You give them something to eat. Which sounds a little bit edgy, doesn't it? Figure it out. I don't think Jesus' intent is for the disciples to actually feed the people. As we'll find out in a minute, Jesus provides in a way that only he can. But I think his comment here is a way of telling them just not to send the people away. And in the process, he's showing them how needy they are. He feels compassion for his people. He cares for them. He feels responsible for them. He wants to provide for them. But in telling the disciples to provide for the people, he's also exposing their poor faith once again. Because they respond in what sounds like a semi-sarcastic but semi-serious way. Okay, so what should we do? Go buy 200 denarii worth of bread? Uh, And if you're reading an ESV, at least I know there's a footnote that says a denarii is is a day's worth of labor. So 200, 200 days worth of work, it's over half of an annual salary. Just imagine using all that for bread. That's the kind of money, though, that fishermen don't have. And they probably wouldn't carry around if they did. And then in verse 8, we know that Jesus told them specifically not to carry around any money. And even if they did, there's other problems as well. The market probably wouldn't have enough bread. They would have to go visit multiple markets, and that would take a long time. And how would they even transport all the bread back? 
you get the idea. This seems like an impossible situation, doesn't it? If the people are to stay with Jesus and the disciples. And one of the things that we can learn from this is that Jesus has a way of providing for his people even when we can't see a conceivable way of that happening. Remember Genesis 17 when God promised to give Abraham and Sarah a child? Abraham falls on his face and he laughs because Sarah is 90 years old at that point. Her womb, her womb is clearly closed. It's a biological impossibility. And yet God provides Isaac. When Israel is fleeing from Egypt, they get pinned up against the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army, and the people cry out, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you brought us in the wilderness to die? God separates the land and the water, and the people cross over. A geological impossibility. God has provided in ways that can only be attributed to his sovereign power. In the past, that's what he's going to do here with this crowd of people as well. Friends, you realize that your salvation is also an impossible situation? That sinners can be saved is a spiritual impossibility. Why? Because the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. In our sin, we are as spiritually barren as Sarah's 90-year-old womb. But the Holy Spirit gives life where there is death and turns hearts of stone into hearts of flesh because Jesus provided a sacrifice on our behalf. Those who have faith can receive forgiveness from the Lord. Friend, you might be thinking that it's impossible for God to save someone like you. But our God is the God who does impossible things. You could be one of them if you turn and trust to Jesus. Yield to him today. That's what makes the gospel beautiful and attractive. Every member of this church was once cut off from God. But he worked a great miracle in our hearts. He gave us faith to see and to accept Jesus as our Savior. Let's continue with the story. The disciples do what we often do, which is they only think about what they don't have rather than what they do have. And rather than thinking about what the Lord can do with what they do have, in our lives, sometimes God intentionally withholds things from us in order to show us our need of Him. Sometimes He keeps us in a state of weakness to remind us that He's more than enough for us. That's what Paul says. That's why he says, when I am weak, then I am strong, because he depends on God all the more. Do you see what is lacking in life as an opportunity to draw closer to God, to depend on him more? Jesus asks a very straightforward question. He asks them to just go and see how much they have. So the disciples go and check. They return with five loaves and two fish, which in John's gospel he tells us they got from a boy. So probably wasn't even enough to feed the twelve disciples and Jesus, let alone this massive crowd of people. But Jesus takes the food, commands them all to sit down in groups of hundreds and fifties, which is probably how they were able to know about how many people were there. He looks up to heaven, says a blessing, 
divides the food between the disciples to give to the people, and somehow every mouth is fed. Every person in the crowd eats, and they keep eating, and there's food, and then they keep eating until they all ate and were satisfied, and then there was still food. There were probably people in this crowd who were very poor, who were accustomed to going hungry, or people who after a meal would ration carefully enough so that they would eat and not be satisfied. But here they're full and satisfied. It's an amazing event, and it's a perplexing one too. Just how in the world did this happen? I always wanted to know. (laughs) Does it just appear magically? Do people realize that this happens? Did Jesus just turn stones into bread like Satan tempts him to do? Does he kind of just pull it out of his robe like, a, like Mary Poppins out of her bag? I remember watching a, a, G, a Jesus film or the Jesus film. Lots of people have tried to recreate this moment. And, you know, they always use the camera to, to create an illusion. He lifts up the basket and it goes underneath, looks up at the bottom of the basket, and he lifts it down and it's overflowing with bread. And he hands it to the disciple and then he goes behind a, a fern and picks out another one and he just keeps dishing them out. How in the world does this bread and fish multiply exactly? Well, we don't really know. And Mark doesn't tell us. And because he doesn't tell us, we can assume that we don't need to know. As a general rule, when you study the Bible, if you're asking questions that the author isn't trying to answer, you're probably missing the point. The point is not, how did it happen? The point is that Jesus has supernatural power to create and provide for. One of the reasons I love miracles like this is because they're just impossible to explain outside of the fact that it just happened. And I would say we shouldn't be able to explain it outside of Jesus' supernatural power. Believe it or not, uh, some people have tried over the years. There are, um, I suppose we can call them historians, who have tried to do this couple of theories they came up with. Jesus was backed up against a a hill with a cave, and his disciples formed kind of an assembly line behind him and passed bread through his robe out to the people like as if they just didn't notice. Another explanation is that when Jesus blessed the food, it inspired the people to share what they had, and this change of heart from the crowd uh, allowed enough food for everyone to eat, and so it was an ethical miracle is what they're saying. I'm sorry, but those explanations are just downright silly. Events like this should challenge us into facing whether or not we actually believe what the Bible says or the power of Jesus. It should challenge us to take the Bible on its own terms rather than trying to force it to say something that it's not. This is what Jesus does. He does impossible things. If he only did things that just a remarkable person could do, then all he would be is a great man. But Jesus is not just a great man. Jesus is the Son of the living God. He's the God of all creation. In him, all things hold together. The fullness of God dwells in him. He is the one who can reconcile to himself 
all things on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross, Colossians 1.20. There's another important theme flowing through this passage. And it adds to the fact that Jesus is not just a man with the power of God. He's not just a shepherd that God would send for his people like the other prophets or leaders in Israel's history. But this event mirrors one of the greatest acts of deliverance in the history of God's people up to this point. It's impossible to ignore the similarities between this miracle and the time that God provided manna in the wilderness just after rescuing them from Egypt. Three times in this passage we read that they're in a desolate place which communicate the proximity to the towns, but it's also the very same word that we translate as wilderness. In Exodus 16, the people are wandering in the wilderness. They grumble, and so Moses organizes them into groups, and God provides manna from heaven. In Mark 6, the people are in the wilderness. The disciples are grumbling, and Jesus organizes the people into groups and feeds them supernaturally. And by working such a similar miracle, a mass production of bread in a remote area, there can be no mistaking that God wants to show people his character and power and identity are all wrapped up with the God of the Exodus. Jews today try to disconnect Jesus from their faith, but passages like this make that very hard to do. You can't ignore that Jesus provides for his people in a way that like a signature of Yahweh. And so Jesus' identity and his character and his power are all put on display in a single event. Not only is he merciful, sorry, not only is he mindful and powerful, but he is the one and only God, the maker of all things, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He's the good shepherd that provides for the needs of his people. This miracle of Jesus feeding 5,000 men doesn't just look back at the deliverance in the wilderness, but it looks forward to the deliverance at the cross. In Exodus 16, the people were only to gather what was needed for themselves so that they didn't lack anything. But in our passage this morning, Jesus provides more than we need, which is shown by the way they take up 12 baskets full of leftovers after the meal. And just as the bread was more than enough to satisfy the great crowd of people, so too the body and the blood of Jesus satisfies the wrath of God against the sinner. He is more than enough. This temporary provision of food in the wilderness is a picture of the eternal provision Christ made before the throne of God so that we could have fellowship with the Father. Later in his ministry, Jesus would use the breaking of bread to symbolize his eternal provision for his people. The night before his death, he broke bread with his disciples and he told them that the breaking of the bread was to symbolize the breaking of his body that was broken for us. And the wine he gave them was to symbolize his blood that was poured out on our behalf. Jesus is the good shepherd that cares for his people and provides for all our needs. And that is seen 
most clearly at the cross. Therefore, we should listen to his voice and remember his provision. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you as the God who provides for all our needs. We take so much for granted. And then we question your goodness when we don't get the things that we think we need. Yet you provide abundantly through your Son, Jesus. We thank you that there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. And that you have made a way to redeem your people forever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.